The Chief Executive Phone-In with Hugh Chiverton and Danny Gittings. Call 233-88266 or email backchat at rthk.hk. Good morning. Welcome to the programme. Over the next hour, it's your chance to question the Chief Executive Carrie Lam on the policy address that she delivered to the Legislative Council on Wednesday. If you want to talk directly to Mrs Lam, you can just give us a call. 233-88266 and we'll put you through. The number is 233-88266. If you can't get to a phone, you can email us backchat at rthk.hk. That's backchat at rthk.hk. But we will give preference to the telephone calls because they make it more interesting. And we're broadcasting today, a reminder, on RTHK Radio 3, on RTHK TV 32. We're webcast and we're also on Facebook Live this morning. And, of course, that means not just in Hong Kong, but broadcasting all around the world. Over the next hour, Mrs Lam will be listening to your comments and answering questions on her first policy speech and the full address that it summarised. What did you like in the speech? Where do you think perhaps she fell short? What do you think of the housing plans? Do you think they'll make any real difference? Do you think perhaps the big spending is an attempt to buy off Hong Kong people's political aspirations? Will young people actually be attracted by the new opportunities for government? Do you welcome more older civil servants? Give us a call on 233-88266-233-88266. Danny. Good morning, Mrs Lamb. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, us. Danny. Good morning, Hugh. So it's, it's your first policy address. Um, what do you make of the reaction so far? I mean, the, uh, the surveys have been pretty favourable. They say it's one of the um, most popular policy addresses for several years. And, um, and it's short. Oh, at least the version <laughs> you delivered is short, which is always um, makes for popularity. Well, first of all, uh, I am very gratified that uh, the way that I delivered the policy address apparently uh, is uh, quite welcome uh, by uh, all people. Uh, and I have to give this credit to my non-official members on the Executive Council because uh, it's always very difficult for somebody within a government to try to come up with a very different way of doing a thing that has been done for decades. So uh, I, uh, when I went to the Executive Council to consult them on this year's policy address, the first thing they told me is not about the content, it's about the delivery. So I took on their advice and uh, presented a full version uh, as published, the uh, 2017 policy address, but then I wrote a speech to introduce a policy address, especially to highlight the uh, important matches in the policy address. Now that's been such a success, presumably you'll be advising the financial secretary to do the <laughs> same when it comes to the budget. I think budget speeches uh, is quite different from the policy address, but of course I'll defer to uh, Paul Chan to decide how to do it. Yeah. The timing, of course, is different as well. Um, why did you want that time lag between the budget and the, and the policy address? Well, uh, as you all know, I've been in the government for over three decades. So I've been doing this uh, budget speeches and this policy addresses for many, many years. And I do uh, appreciate that there's actually a uh, market difference between a policy address from the chief executive and the budget speech. The budget speech uh, has no choice because uh, the financial year starts on the 1st of April. So it's around end uh, February, early March. You have to deliver a budget speech for the coming financial year that that is going to commence on the 1st of April. But for the policy address, it is really making for the chief executive to make um, a um, statement about governance, about the uh, policy initiatives that will be funded in the um, subsequent budget. So the earlier that we could do it at the introduction or at the commencement of the legislative year, the better. So the first sitting to do a policy address is uh, what I feel is a better arrangement. 
So it's the uh, policy address generally has gone down well, but there have been concerns. We had some of those in uh, Chinese language forums sure. yesterday, particularly on housing. <laughs> people maybe welcome your new initiatives, but they worry about the effect on public rental housing, mm. that people are going to be waiting even longer for flats. How do you react to that? Well, as I said in the uh, policy address, housing is the most difficult complicated area because the ultimate solution to housing uh, is supply. And to supply housing requires land. So the most difficult part now is how to get community consensus on the supply of land for Hong Kong's uh, future and present and future needs, not only in terms of housing, but also in terms of the many economic activities. So I have to confess that, yes, I now lay down very clearly my housing philosophy. I now introduce some innovative thinking on the uh, rebuilding the housing ladder and other things. But at the end of the day, we need land before I could fully meet the people's aspirations. See, some people will say, you know, the main problem is, is the, the high uh, price price of, of yeah. housing uh, and accommodation, and that by encouraging people to join the market and get in the uh, get in the on the ladder now is the wrong time to do it. You shouldn't be stepping out away from PRH now. No, we are not stepping away from uh, PRH. We are meeting the aspirations of existing tenants in the PRH who aspire to buy and to own their flat uh, when we introduce you the first be, pilot. You shouldn't be saying to them, this is not the time to buy now. Well, I think the time to buy is to be decided by the individual families. But the reality is when we introduce the first pilot for the green form subsidized housing that is allowing exclusively PRH tenants to buy, it was oversubscribed by 18 times. So that demand to buy is there, especially now that the housing authority is tightening up but what is the well-off But is it a good idea to indulge that now? At the end of the day, if accommodation, if you are owning a flat for your own needs, then, and if you could afford it, why not? Yeah. And labour importation is another area where you've seen concerns, haven't you, even from uh, people in the pro-establishment camp. And we had yeah. um, your policy secretary yesterday saying mm. it's only a matter of time mm. before you start importing labour yeah. to um, um, help out in uh, nursing homes. Yeah. Uh, but uh, unionists are very unhappy with that. Well, unionists by nature are unhappy about any importation of labour. But, uh, I, I, of course, I, I agree with um, CK Law that this is something that we could not keep on refraining from addressing. In fact, we have been addressing it uh, at the moment for the uh, importation of labour. I think uh, one-third to one-half uh, are workers imported to work in elderly homes. And that has not been met with very severe resistance because people understand as the population ages, uh, we need more carers uh, in the elderly homes. And we recognize that local people are not very willing to work in these uh, places. So the, the only solution is to get some outside workers to help. Or foreign domestic helpers. I mean, there have been these proposals floated around, haven't there, yeah. that you would um, invite foreign domestic helpers to start working in um, elderly homes in Hong Kong. What, what do you think of that? Well, it's not as simple as that because uh, foreign domestic helpers have their own scheme and regime and requirements and restrictions. But the fact is now we have 360,000 foreign domestic helpers. I back a large number of them are actually working as elderly carers in the home environment. So if we want to uh, especially import and train up some foreign helpers to do elderly homes, then I, I suppose it has to be a separate scheme. Otherwise, we're entering into a lot of complications. But is that something you think you'll be looking at during the current term? 
I, I do feel we need to look at that area. Otherwise, even if we are able to uh, commit resources for better elderly care, we just don't have the manpower. Um, you know, you spoke of uh, the kind of resistance to change. Sometimes there may be good reasons for that, for that <laughs> resistance because the way things are, you know, has, has certain advantages or certain strengths. I'm thinking of the tax regime, and you've meant, you mentioned uh, in, in the address the advantages of a simple tax regime. Are you at all worried that the, with this complication, with this new suggestion for SMEs, uh, this uh, double tax rate, that you're beginning to chip away at that fundamental principle of a very simple oh, no, tax system? Definitely for Hong Kong? No. Introducing yeah. kind of loopholes? No, definitely not. No, because uh, Hong Kong's economic freedom and competitiveness uh, in a large way uh, depend on our uh, simple tax system and low tax rate. So that is the uh, sort of uh, fundamentals. Okay. So what I, I'm doing is really uh, on top of being simple and low, introduce an element called competitive. In a global environment with uh, all these uh, measures being done by cities in this uh, region, if Hong Kong remains as is, and that is we, we do nothing, we will be lagging behind in terms of competitiveness. In fact, we are lagging behind. Many cities uh, around us have this uh, two-tier profits tax. Uh, but in designing this uh, two-tier profits tax, I bear in mind that it has to be simple. Uh, that's why we said that uh, the so-called two-tier profits tax is uh, for the first two million profits. We are going to grant it to every enterprise. Do you really well, think it's going to encourage people to come to Hong Kong? I mean, if you do the maths, you're talking about maybe saving $15,000 or so. Oh, very rate. much so, Hugh. And Danny, I, I told you, I, I've been uh, out of Hong Kong to promote Hong Kong uh, since um, taking up the job of CS for administration. And of course, in the last three months, I went to uh, four uh, overseas countries. When you talk to business, uh, attracting them to come to Hong Kong, tax is the first issue. When they come to Hong and Kong, low tax is very attractive. You just, I, I just have this tagline for you. Well, please come to Hong Kong to do a startup, small business. You're only subject to a tax rate, a single digit tax rate. 8.25. Uh, as long That's as you make a profit. As long as you make a profit. And a yeah. lot of those sort of startups are not in line to make a profit. No, no, of course, off, when they, they want to come to Hong Kong to invest or to start a business, they aim to make a profit. Sure, but they will only be rewarded. They will only get that advantage. Well, then we, if they, we if they want they make people to make a profit in Hong Kong. What's the point of promoting Hong Kong, inviting people to come, uh, not being confident that they will be able to make a good business here? This yeah. is very much a personal initiative, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you, you make great play of the fact you were saying you've cut profits tax even lower than you promised in your election manifesto. Well, the, 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 credit, the credit uh, goes to my colleagues in the Financial Services and uh, Treasury uh, Bureau. I did not further impose lower than promised uh, tax rate. <laughs> But they came back uh, with uh, this halving of the 16.5 to 8.25. Similarly, for incentivizing enterprises to invest in research and development, I, I promised um, it's 200%. That is doubling in terms of a super deduction. Again, colleagues came back. Why don't we also have a tier arrangement for the first 2 million R&D expenses? Give them 300%. I, I, th I thought that was a very good idea, so I put it into this uh, policy address. Okay. Our telephone number is 233 uh, If you'd like to put a question to uh, the Chief Executive, Carrie Lam, on the policy address, once again, 233 Let's take us uh, some calls now. First of all, I think we have Mr Kong on the line. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Please good morning, Mr. Good morning, Mr. Kong. Yeah, good morning. Yes, uh, I'm a post-90 uh, Hong Kong citizen. Uh, and I love cooking. And uh, I went 
I go to the wet market in Hong Kong every week, and I see there are a huge demand in uh, Hong Kong uh, local food products, uh, fresh vegetables, uh, fresh pork, and uh, people love to buy uh, local food products. And I'm happy to see that in your policy address, you mentioned uh, the government will stop the damage of agricultural land or the change of the use of agricultural land. Uh, but uh, I'm happy to see that. But uh, according to many uh, news reports in recent days, uh, the government is planning to convert farmland, which owns by uh, property developers, to residential use. So I'm just curious about, is there a contradiction between your agricultural and housing policy? And uh, can you promise uh, the people in Hong Kong that farmland in Hong Kong will be well protected? Uh, thank you very much. Well, first of all, Mr. Kung, there is no contradiction uh, in what um, I have said in my policy address. And uh, likewise, I could not promise that uh, every um, inch uh, of agricultural land in Hong Kong will be preserved because uh, land in Hong Kong is limited. Of course, we used to quote a figure of the 1,100 square kilometers of land in Hong Kong, only about one quarter, that is 25 to 26 percent, has been uh, developed for various purposes. But a large chunk has already been protected under country parks. They are under legal protection. So uh, to say that every remaining farmland should also be uh, preserved and not being used for development is just unrealistic. But we need to balance the needs. So on the one hand, we have housing, we have development needs. On the other hand, we appreciate and understand that um, people want some um, uh, good farming, organic farming and so on. So we have struck a balance. I think in the last term of government, we wrote out an agricultural policy and even uh, decided that we could sort of acquire some land to turn it into good agricultural um, uh, plots. Uh, for farmers or interested parties to farm. But there are some farmland which have been deserted and actually have been uh, rezoned for other purposes, including housing. I I don't see any reason why we should stop that sort of rezoning in order to optimise the use of land in Hong Kong. And how about country park boundaries? Your predecessor talked about that quite a lot, um, relaxing country park boundaries to provide more land for housing. Well, that is one of the options being laid on the table. Because over the years, whenever the government wrote out one option, where there's reclamation outside Victoria Harbour, urban regeneration, acquisition of uh, farmland in the NT, Brownfield Sykes, there were bound to be objections. So um, I think the last term government, indeed, in the current land supply task force, the approach is to lay all the options on the table. And then we weigh the pros and cons and then decide on uh, which options to go for. But even in the country uh, parks, the uh, assignment now given to the housing society is really the fringes, uh, not going into the core of the country park to uh, build houses. But, but over the line. OK, uh, thank you very much indeed for your call, Mr. Kong. Our number once again, 233-88266. We've got a caller, Azan, on the line now. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. Hello, Hello. yeah, Azan, go ahead. Uh, yeah, good morning, Ms. Lam good morning. and uh, the back, back chat team. Uh, Ms. Lam, I would first like to say congratulations on your speech and how well it was received. Thank you. Um, I'd like to talk about the Children's Commission. Hmm. Um, I was very gratified as a member of the sort of uh, civil society pushing for a children's commission that you mentioned it in your speech, but there was no mention of whether or not the commission would be independent or statute-based. 
Well, uh, I have already set up a preparatory committee uh, to prepare for the setting up of the Children's Commission, hopefully by the middle of uh, next year. And uh, we have told the preparatory committee, actually I chair the preparatory committee, that to start off, we do not envisage the Children's Commission to be an independent statutory authority. Uh, in fact, right now we have the Children's Commission, we have the Elderly Commission, we have the Women's Commission, we have the Family Council, they are all very important um, uh, statutory and uh, non-statutory advisory bodies of the government. They've been working well. So uh, at the moment, I don't see uh, the um, case for rushing into a statutory uh, children's commission because um, I'm sure ASEAN will know that we already have a statutory independent EOC, e- uh, Equal Opportunities Commission. So I prefer that we move uh, in a manner which will allow us to pull together expertise and uh, resources to look at children's uh, matters. And then we decide after the Children's Commission has been up and running whether there are sufficient reasons for turning it into a statutory body. Azan, what would the difference be? Why would it be important? Yeah, Ms. Lam, I, I can't stress. I work in the um, children's protection area. I, I'm a lawyer. Um, I see children whose lives are endangered, sometimes lost, I see children who are subjected to abuse and neglect. You said at the beginning of your talk this morning that it's sometimes difficult for people in government to see new ways of doing things. Those those were your words. And this, this is the international consensus. It is very difficult for people in government especially in a, if a commission is uh, government-led or government-staffed, for them to see what, they, what it is they are doing wrong. Because I, I can say I've spent the last year or so uh, attending LegCo and speaking directly to some of your principal officials and your junior officials, telling them about what is wrong. The difficulty they face in acknowledging uh, when there are problems and dealing with those problems when they are cocooned in a particular department is it's overwhelming. Mm. There is now an international consensus that if we want to do something about this, and you know, I would refer you to the, commission, uh, the uh, Committee on Children's Rights in the United Nations. They say the best way of dealing with this is to have an independent body, which is statute-based. Okay. And, is, and, and, and in your own words, to use something mm, similar to the EOC. Mm, okay, it's just, yeah. it's well, Asim, I, I, I hope that you will have more confidence and faith uh, in this term of a government. There are a lot of things that apparently were being resisted by previous uh, governments and uh, officials, which we are now doing it. Uh, the idea of having a children's commission have been there for, for years uh, the idea of having an official poverty line has been there for years, uh, but we, we could change it. Uh, as far as uh, statutory protection of children, we have existing legislation that will have the effect, and I will make sure that our enforcement bodies will be very vigilant and working with uh, children's uh, groups and uh, lawyers like yourself uh, to enhance the protection for children. I can assure you that children's interests will always be put at the forefront of my policy, and that was actually in the policy address. I said in one of the paragraphs that in whatever we do in terms of education and social services, the first and foremost is the interest of the child. Well, Hassan, thank you very much for your call. Best of luck with your work. And number once again, 233-88266. Please don't leave it to the end of the programme because we always get a log jam with everyone <laughs> trying to get in the last five minutes. Uh, if you want to get a proper question in and uh, a proper response, then uh, give us a call now, 233-88266. We've got quite a few callers lining up. Uh, Mr Sharif, I think, is next. Mr Sharif, good morning. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. Um, Mr. Lam, 
Hi, I just wanted to applaud you on, on the measures that you have announced for innovation and technology. If all your measures come to bear, I think the next five years will represent a paradigm shift in terms of Hong Kong's approach towards innovation and technology. My, my specific question is as follows. You, you said you will um, personally lead an interdepartmental steering committee on innovation and technology to examine and steer measures under the eight areas, and you will also appoint a chief executive council of advisors on innovation and strategic development. My question is, um, how far will you cast the net to draw upon expertise in Hong Kong in order to staff these two committees? Um, and specifically, I would like to self-nominate because uh, I'm, an, I'm an associate professor at the University of Science and Technology in public policy and social science, and I've been researching these issues for 13 or 14 years. I'm a permanent resident of Hong Kong, born and raised in Hong Kong, and I would be eager to take part in these very exciting initiatives that you have now announced, which would represent perhaps the biggest change in, in the innovation and technology landscape in Hong Kong since uh, your predecessor, Tung Chi Wa's era in 1997 to 2002. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Sheriff. I, I can assure you that uh, I am very determined uh, to press ahead with the innovation technology uh, blueprint and measures introduced in my policy address. Of the two committees that you have mentioned, the uh, first one that I'm going to chair personally uh, on the, st the steering committee on innovation technology is an internal committee. This is to make sure that each bureau and department will work in concert uh, to implement the various measures. I have heard a lot of uh, journalists' uh, sort of uh, cynicism in the press conference of uh, my Secretary for Innovation and Technology, Nick Yang, yesterday, uh, querying that uh, whether I was uh, taking up his job mm. and whether he was not uh, good enough. Uh, I have to say that these are all nonsense <laughs> because INT is not just a single industry. It uh, permeates into every sector in the government. So it does require the attention of the CE. Of course, with Secretariat being provided by the Innovation and Technology Bureau. So that is an internal committee um, comprising myself and all the relevant principal officials. Um, but you are very uh, right and spot on. You notice that I have another high-level committee, which is the C Chief Executive's Council of Advisors on uh, Innovation and Strategic Development. So the areas are much broader. It's not just INT. It's a lot of other things. But INT will be an important part of this CE's uh, Council of Advisors. Uh, I can promise you that uh, I will cast a net very wide to bring in outside um, experts uh, onto this council advisors and I will certainly uh, remember or bear in mind your self-nomination because I remember Mr. Sheriff you were on the 2016 diversity list of um, people nominated to the government for appointment to the various government boards and committees. And uh, your CV uh, looks uh, very, <laughs> very attractive to me. Leo, so you're already on the list, Mr. <laughs> Sheriff. Thank you very, thank you very thank much you. indeed for your call and, and, and your CV uh, as well. Uh, and number once again, 233-88266. Okay, I think we've got to Craig n next on the line. Craig, good morning to you. Good morning, yes, Craig. Good morning. Good morning, Hi. Mrs. Lam. So today I'm speaking to you as a parent. Okay. And if time permits, I have two points to raise with you uh, this morning. I know the news is coming up, so let's uh, see if we can get through them. No news, but go ahead. <laughs> no news. <laughs> Wonderful. That's great news today. Okay. So first of all, I'd like to thank the government for recent enhancements to the free kindergarten voucher system. However, this is now required for primary and secondary education. And I was expecting such measures in your address on Wednesday. So my ask of you today 
is that children with at least one parent holding a permanent ID card be entitled to an education voucher which they can present to any non-for-profit primary and secondary school system. The voucher should be the same value as the rate per child as received by existing government schools. So let's just imagine the cost of the government for educating a primary student is $70,000 per year, $90,000 for um, secondary ones. So that's my ask that um, we have such a, a voucher system in place and any balance of school fees would be directly settled by the parents. And th this seems to me to be a, a very fair outcome. After all, the lion's share of salaries tax in years to come is most likely to be coming from this group of students who currently are not supported by government. So my ask of you today is that I seek your commitment to you for you to form some sort of working group to make this a reality. Uh, Craig, um, although I have a reputation of uh, always trying to think out of the box, I'm afraid what you have suggested is a very radical departure from the existing system. I don't want to argue with you whether your proposition is a better thing because... <laughs> Danny will remember 20 years ago when I was in the treasury, I've been advocating sort of a money following the user, money following the elderly. That is a sort of voucher system. But we are now so uh, sort of ingrained into an existing uh, subsidy or subvention mode for education. Uh, it is uh, almost impossible to pull out. But I have actually introduced something along those lines that is a voucher without actually calling it a voucher. Uh, this academic year for uh, DSE students who um, managed to get the marks for entry into university but uh, do not get a place in the UGC publicly funded universities. I'm giving them $30,000 each year for a four-year program into the self-financing uh, tertiary institution. So the choice is theirs. Uh, whether they go to this university or that institution, the 30000 uh, belongs to the uh, student. Uh, but to do it for the whole spectrum of education, I'm sure that uh, will lead to a major public uh, in society. Okay. Craig, thank you very much indeed for your call. Our number once again, 233-88266. Let's, let's just, just uh, veer away to the other big issue of the past few days for a moment. Um, we had a statement from the uh, Foreign Ministry, the Central Government, oh, Foreign Ministry yesterday, uh, saying that um, entry into China is a matter for the Central Government mm. for all parts, and saying that uh, basically the Central Government has the ultimate decision on who can, uh, who can enter and exit Hong Kong. I imagine there are many foreign nationals in Hong Kong and mm. former foreign nationals mm. very concerned about this. We thought this was part of Hong Kong's autonomy, that Hong Kong authorities decide this, but now the central government appears to be saying this is a matter of foreign affairs. If you're a foreigner, you can ultimately, the central government can decide whether or not you're allowed into Hong Kong. Well, I, I suppose that should be understood in context. The context is, yes, under the basic law of one country, two systems, the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region has a high degree of autonomy. We have our own immigration policies, customs, and so on and so on. But when it comes to uh, foreign affairs, then it is a matter for the uh, Central People's Government. So whether the entry of a particular person, I'm talking in general terms, mm. not about a case, uh, whether that entry will be regarded as a matter of foreign affairs, and of course, it's, um, if it is a matter of foreign affairs, then it comes under the uh, central people's government's and authority. And that's for the central government to decide. They can decide any foreign national, any yeah. Hong Kong resident, any former Hong Kong resident who is a foreign national is a matter of foreign affairs, and so they can um, give instructions to bar that person from Hong Kong, correct? Well, I, I really can't disclose uh, even more details on how uh, we work 
uh, with the central government because we do have a chapter in the basic law which talks about the relationship between the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region and the central people's government. But I want to clarify any worries, misunderstanding that this whole matter of immigration is now being uh, taken over by the central people's government. That's certainly, definitely not the case. Of course, is, isn't it? Sorry? I thought, I thought that was the case. That was not the case because, as I said, the case has to be regarded and treated and fall under what constitutes a foreign affairs matter. But that's defined by the central authorities. So uh, they can step in at any time. I'm sure you will understand that uh, decisions of this nature will not be taken arbitrarily. There must be clear evidence. I I have no idea if they're taken arbitrarily or not. Because 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 immigration matters are not to be discussed on a case-by-case basis in public. So basically, what all you're not say talking to, about that. Yeah. We haven't mentioned yeah. anybody. Any particular <laughs> all you can say to foreign nationals is, "Don't worry, yeah. decisions won't be taken arbitrarily about you, but they won't necessarily be taken in Hong Kong." No, I have said, and uh, we can't uh, tell you how uh, they will be taken. No, I have told you in uh, unequivocal terms that immigration matters under the basic law are Hong Kong's high degree of autonomy. But if immigration matters become matters of foreign affairs, then under the basic law, foreign affairs like defence are matters for the central people's government. Will, Will Chris Patton be the next one to be banned from entering Hong Kong then? I cannot comment on cases. He was here, but um, <laughs> we now have this statement from the central government. You can't rule out the possibility that um, he talks about Hong Kong affairs when he comes here. You can't exclude the possibility on that On immigration cases, it is not for the chief executive to comment and say this and that. Uh, this has to be decided by the immigration authorities having regards to the policies and the well, they details report, they of They the report case. to you. You're the chief executive. The immigration authorities Yeah, are. but I, I, I don't tell you everything. Yeah, police uh, go out to <laughs> catch criminals. Am I there to direct the commissioner of police of well, who to catch? So you can't, certainly can't exclude the possibility that Chris Patton might be denied entry on a future visit? Well, I can't exclude any possibility because immigration matters will, will change depending on the case. Yeah. And, and of course the case that has brought this to, to focus is a former Hong Kong resident who lived here for many years and he says he was coming back to uh, visit for former friends. Don't you have some sympathy at a personal level for cases like that? Someone who's lived in Hong Kong and wants to come back to Hong Kong again. You must have many, many friends in the same situation in Britain. Maybe they're going to worry about whether... Why? I don't think my British friends are any at, <laughs> at any, of any degree worrying about this thing. Well, but they surely they, they have cause to now, don't they? Because they, you've seen one former Hong Kong resident denied um, the right to come back to Hong Kong. Well, it's not denied the right. I think is uh, immigration authorities are having this authority and discretion to decide who could come in and who couldn't come in. You see, the thing is, this looks like a little bit more chipping away at one country, two systems, because we thought that we could control immigration, and it seems we can't. No, I I think that is undue worry. Uh, Every day in every jurisdiction, there are this sort of cases. And every time, you know, you get another reinterpretation. The co-location is is definitely being uh, blown all out of contest. I think this is a uh, uh, CIQ arrangement to provide a high degree of uh, convenience to passengers and to uh, reap the benefits both economically and socially. Giving a high degree of autonomy for no, a high we, degree we of not. convenience. No, sorry. We're not. This is uh, legally sound and we still have to go through a three-step approach to make sure that it is legally sound. Well, of course, it's, 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 a, it's the most bizarre legal... I mean, it's literally yeah. it's carving out a piece 
of Hong Kong, a million square feet of Hong so, Kong. So sorry, it's not carving it, our and piece. And then saying this is not Hong Kong. We are declaring this is uh, not no, Hong no, Kong. No, 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 no. It's not carving out. Well, I'm sure you have traveled on the uh, Eurostar. You have been doing a pre-clearance in uh, Canadian airports and so on and so on. This is agreement to facilitate what will t- bring benefits to the people. They don't have basic laws. They don't have basic laws which specify what we are the, the doing, laws of that other, uh, no, no, no. other administration cannot be applied. What we are doing does not breach the basic law. Because we will get an agreement because signed. <laughs> we will get the highest uh, law-making body in the People's Republic of China, the National People's Congress Standing Committee, to pass a resolution so to, to confirm. To bypass the basic law. No, the basic law has provisions under Article 158, I think, that gives uh, National People's Congress that uh, power. What do you say to people who worry that um, if you can carve out part of West Kowloon and say it's not part of Hong Kong, and it's not just West Kowloon, I mean, these trains running between the West Kowloon terminus and the border, they, they're going to have to be outside Hong Kong territory no, as well. Let me make it clear again. It's not a question of carving out. It's a question of, for people's convenience, once you step into a mainland control area within the West Kowloon station, you will be subject to the mainland CIQ Arrangements. That's because or that would, subject would not to be Hong mainland. Kong. You'd be stepping outside Hong Kong. Not that just CIQ, be. mainland law in, 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 in other respects, right? In, in mainland all respects. law, if you well, Of course, because the CIQ law. comes with a related uh, legislation. Because so, otherwise, it will create, as the Secretary for Security has explained, a lot of confusion in law enforcement. But so in what, other jurisdictions, they, re, they restrict... Uh, they, they restrict it to CIQ kind of procedures, don't they? They don't apply all laws. But in our case, as I have explained, as the Secretary for Security has explained, that would cause a great lot of confusion if we try to differentiate works elsewhere, the, the CIQ and the non-CIQ arrangements. Yeah. What do you say to people who worry if you can have one CIQ area like this, you can have another? You could choose to make the um, uh, the China Ferry Terminal into a CIQ area. You could choose for some, some I, I think that's a bit far-fetched. People have to understand in context what we are talking about. What we are talking about is we are building this high-speed rail with a view to providing higher connectivity and connectivity convenience to the people. And this strip of the 26 kilometers of Hong Kong section could only achieve that purpose by having co-location, that is the, both the uh, entry and the exit CIQ arrangements being done simultaneously at the West Kowloon station. Otherwise, okay. it defeats the purpose. And number once again, 233 We've got a caller, Ling, on the line now. Ling, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Ling. Miss Lady, Car- uh, Lady Carrie Lam, um, I really appreciate your passion for life, but that's not enough. Why I say so, throughout my 10 years observation in livelihood in Hong Kong, in my picture, I asked myself at the midnight, why do people commit suicide, saying that they cannot afford to live in Hong Kong, to live on earth. So I need your courage to talk to nationwide Hong Kong-wide people and also official level, like, for example, how to use technology, like Lam Chiu Ying, like me, like uh, Dr. Li Wai Choi, 350 uh, spokesman. Because 
the people know technology, but may not know how to make use, good use of it to make everybody survive and live in a quality life with quality character. Especially when we talk about one bell, one road, we may go to other countries that people with less civilized mind. How can we support them? How can we support people working in the mainland? We need your concern. We need you um, say some principle to the people who have the power. Okay. It's not what, what you have the power to do, but what is the principle? Why somebody come to Hong Kong to talk about human rights and they cannot come to Hong Kong? What's wrong with their principles? Okay, Ling, thanks very much indeed for your call. You, you, you've spoken kind of fairly optimistically about Hong Kong, your vision of Hong Kong and the people of Hong Kong, haven't you? Yes, if I do not have that confidence and optimism for Hong Kong, why should I do this job? <laughs> this job is uh, 16, 17 hours a day, non-stop, because uh, I think uh, the more we could do as a government for the people of Hong Kong, uh, as Ling uh, aspire for, Hong Kong's quality of life for our local population will improve. Uh, that is the ultimate uh, objective of my administration. Uh, Ling has covered on a range of issues. I can only respond by saying that uh, one of the key um, features in my policy address that I have said is I want this government to be a compassionate government. That's why I would not uh, disregard um, things that we could do just because the number of people involved uh, is very small just like this um, patient suffering from uh, SMA that is, uh, I can't remember the full clinical name. Spinal muscular uh, atrophy. Uh, In this policy address, we said that for those who are suffering from these uncommon diseases, that we would try our very best to help. And by the way, my Secretary for Food and Health, upon returning from an overseas trip, has immediately uh, contacted again that pharmaceutical company with a view to persuade them to uh, come to Hong Kong. You said uh, 16, 17 hour working days. Why should I do this job? Um, Do you ever have second thoughts that that maybe you shouldn't have stepped forward to stand for this job? Well, I don't have second thoughts because uh, uh, this is a huge and honourable mission for any person. Or regrets, maybe. Regrets Uh, about what you're going to do. I I would continue to say that there's one person who is always having second thoughts, and that is uh, my husband. Does, does that mean you promised him that you only serve one term and you, you would never consider a second term? Well, it's not a matter of promise. It's a matter of uh, his approval is on the basis of five more years. Well, let, let, let's just get that straight quickly. Is, is there a, would you rule out any prospect of serving a second term or is that something you'll look at later? Now, I'm now a politician, Danny. And uh, as a politician, you don't say no on anything that you are not certain. So uh, let's leave it at that. So you're not certain, in other words, right? That's why you can't say no. No, I, I just want to serve the people of Hong Kong. But of course, if you ask my personal aspiration, I've I've got a lot of things I want to do. I want to go back to do some cooking. I want to do some traveling and reading and whatnot. Uh, but at the moment, Hong Kong has a very good window uh, to scale new heights, whether it's in the INT that Mr. Sherry have given me this uh, strong vote of confidence uh, that there could be a paradigm shift in five years' time, or in helping the people who need uh, government to do more, whether it's elderly people, uh, uh, children with special needs, and ethnic minorities, and so on. So the, uh, my, my primary objective and wish now is really to serve the people of Hong Kong. Okay, once again, our telephone number, 233 And uh, Shabina, I think, is next on the line. Shabina, hello. 
Hello. Hello, Sabrina. Good morning. Ah, good morning. Good morning, uh, Mrs. Lam and uh. Bakshat team. Um, Danny Giddings, I was one of uh, your one of your students long time ago at <laughs> University of Hong Kong. <laughs> so um, I would like to um, bring out some issues just at an ordinary person, ordinary Hong Kong resident. I'm born in Hong Kong, brought up here, and working here. So my uh, first issue or the things that I would like to highlight is about the hospital um, uh, situation in Hong Kong. Our hospitals are really crowded, and what we need is more hospital. Uh, not um, our basically, I will say, doctors and nurses. We have faith in them, and our medical is really good in Hong Kong. Lots of us do trust that. Um, any long-term conditions, people go to public hospitals. So. I basically would say that we need more hospitals because overcrowded hospitals in Hong Kong right now. Um, the second issue I would like to bring out is about um, environment. Uh, what I've seen is that uh, we need to encourage and move forward to all public transport being on electro electronic vehicles. But it can't be overnight. It has to be gradual. But government needs to support that. So how we fade out any um, pollutant um, vehicles from our roads and also sometimes it's very ironic that uh, I give you one example airport authority is, is a government's body and then they talk about waste uh, separation in the planes but then uh, they produced a lot of waste by planning to demolish our terminal 2 and rebuilding it again and the, if you are talking about protecting environment on the other hand you are going to produce a lot of construction waste noise, dust, um, so it, it's contradicting. So I believe government needs to do more uh, towards environment because uh, a lot of people are suffering from especially air pollution in Hong Kong, so we, we have to do, we have to take drastic steps there. And also, um, my last point I would like to bring out is please do not um, distribute back $6,000 if people pay tax because that's something that's not feasible and doesn't work. I do not agree with giving back money to people if uh, we have an overflow of uh, uh, money gathered. Uh, basically due to the reason is people who give tax are not the only ones to get it back. Anyone, any Tom, Dick and Harry will get those 6000 back. And uh, I would prefer if you take those extra money out to support um, elderly education, environment, hospital or put it back in the bucket of people who pay tax. Okay. Sabrina, thank you. Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, Sabrina has raised uh, three um, major areas of uh, concern uh, which have been covered also in my policy address. First on uh, Hong Kong's uh, hospital services. I echo her in applauding the quality, the high quality of our hospital services um, in the public sector and also this uh, dedication of our frontline uh, medical nursing and paramedical staff. You remember this summer we have a peak flu uh, hitting Hong Kong. So I was, uh, without any prior notification, I went to Queen Elizabeth Hospital and I saw myself this, uh, what Sabrina has described, the, the crowded and overloaded situation at um, the accident emergency department. But still, all the doctors and nurses were running around to, to help uh, the uh, patients and um, their uh, families. I, I really salute our medical staff so in this policy address, we are dealing with this issue on what we call a two-prong approach. 
One is to provide immediate relief by increasing the uh, funding to the hospital authority and adopting for the first time a formula which will take into account the aging of a population. So everybody knows that Hong Kong's population is aging. So that means that hospital authority can be quite certain that there will be increased funding for them to tackle uh, the imp- increase the patient load. And separately, we have committed $200 billion to uh, expand and build new hospitals. Uh, But the other prong is actually more important and relevant is we really need to make a shift of what Mr. Sheriff called a paradigm shift to primary health care, disease prevention, health promotion, screening, community care, home care, in order to reduce the need for hospitalization for the elderly patients. So uh, together with the Secretary for Food and Health, we have... um, decided that that this time round we must be very determined to do more on primary health care with uh, what we call a primary health care center or primary health care hub in each district so that they could serve the elderly and other chronic disease patients better. The second uh, issue is about environment. Uh, On environment, um, reading through the policy address, you may feel that there aren't a lot of new things. The reason being in the last term of government through uh, Secretary for Environment, who's also in this term as a Secretary of Environment, he has led laid out um, several very important blueprints on carbon um, emission reduction, waste management, uh, water quality. So in this term, we'll just roll out and implement all these measures. Electric vehicles is... um it's something that uh, we will have to look at seriously, especially after the, this year's uh, budget uh, initiative to withdraw some of the concessions that uh, a lot of people have uh, lobbied me that this seems a bit contradictory to your push for more EVs in Hong Kong. So, uh, I'm Do you, sure. you have some, some sympathy for those complaints? I, I have some sympathy because uh, uh, in many countries, they are not taking a gradual approach to move to EV. They're taking what I regard as a bold approach, announcing that by a certain year, there will be no more uh, diesel or petrol uh, vehicles on, on the roads. Um, whether we could go that far, I don't know, but certainly it's something that we need to tackle. Of course, uh, so the Ombudsman has just launched an investigation into yes. this. Uh, is, yeah. is this an area you need to look again at? Oh, definitely, at yeah. definitely, definitely. Um, the third area is about f- f- public finance. Uh, I noticed uh, Sabrina's uh, reservation about this um, distribution of $6,000 previously by the government. Uh, my fiscal philosophy is such that we are now sitting on a reserve of over $1,000 billion, which is adequate to, uh, to look after the government for two years without any uh, income. So this is really the time to take a bolder uh, approach uh, in two things. One is to invest in Hong Kong whether it's infrastructure, education, or other things. The other is to help solve some fundamental, long-outstanding problems, like waiting time for uh, rehabilitation services by the young kids uh, with developmental needs or um, elderly community health care and, and so on and so on. So uh, I, I certainly uh, adopt, I would certainly adopt that approach to target um, the uh, government resources towards uh, these two main areas. Okay. You're listening and watching a phone in with the Chief Executive uh, Carrie Lam on the policy address that she delivered um, this Wednesday. We're coming towards the uh, end of the program, so if you've your last chance really to get a call in, 233-88266. And we've got a lot of emails, but I'm we don't have time to get to them um, so far this morning. I think Paul is next. It's uh, Paul Zimmerman, I think. Uh, good morning. Uh, good, uh, good morning, Chief Executive uh, Denny and you. Go ahead, Paul. Yes. Um, so, uh, Chief Executive, I mean, we share a real common vision about how to make Hong Kong uh, the best place to live and work and visit and 
go to school and, and enjoy nature. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic city, and if we cherish it and we, we really work hard on it, we can do a lot to, uh, to make sure that the city is outstanding. That I, 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 we work on different areas uh, with governments, uh, and I'm not sure which topic I shall choose for today to ask you questions on, but it's the harbour front district administration or conservation but I can leave that pick with you maybe shall I talk about um, all three or uh, one of them well, just, <laughs> just one please Paul just one and uh, a question would be good little question uh, no I can ask you a question on, on the harbour front or district administration or conservation so uh, which one uh, shall I ask you which one are you guys interested Mrs. in today? Well, we talk about the harbour front Okay, there you go, Paul. Harbourfront. Yeah, no, we, the uh, the Harbourfront Authority um, targeted to be set up was, was and then eight initial projects, about ten billion dollars. Uh, the total projects where we really are ready to go and start uh, cl- very close to implementation is, is is greater than that. We're talking about twenty, thirty billion dollars worth of Harbourfront work that needs to be done with its Kaitech, Wanchai Central, Quarry Bay, Hoysan Park extension, and so on. We now have set up a harbour office with only five hundred million dollars. So, um, getting that money unlocked, and whether we do that through with a harbour authority or with a harbour office, either way, to get the money unlocked and get going on these projects seems to be something we have to is imminent. Got to be resolved with the next budget. Um, are we ready to get it done? Well, uh, the um, the passion to preserve the harbour front for people to enjoy is there. Uh, the money is there. There's an initial 500 million commitment in the last term of government. Uh, I don't see why we could not unlock the money and get something done. Uh, if we couldn't couldn't do that, it would probably because of again um, resistance, tension, disagreement, which are poor sometimes play a part <laughs> in generating that sort of tension and friction uh, in society. Um, but I just want to say something more about the Harbourfront Authority idea, which was conceived by me uh, during my last year as a Secretary for Development. I actually uh, set up a group, invited some experts uh, to come to look at uh, what sort of institution we should have in managing the harbour front and came up with this idea of uh, harbour front authority. But five years down the road, I now tend to have a different view. Uh, instead of having one single harbour front authority comprising non-officials to look after harbour front, why shouldn't uh, we have some uh, more district-based um, a sort of uh, trust uh, that could look after um, uh, certain parts of the harbour front that will reflect the characteristics of that particular district and give people more uh, opportunity to participate. I, I think of what uh, in the New York City, a lot of the parks are not run by a government department. They have a sort of people's trust uh, involving the business in that vicinity and the people uh, who manage the parks. So we could do something like that in the harbour Okay, uh, thank you very much indeed for your, for your comment, Paul. Uh, six minutes to nine. Uh, let's uh, move on with the calls. I think uh, Duncan is next. Duncan, hello. Yeah, good morning, Carrie. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I read your, uh, your uh, speech with interest and the accompanying document and uh, some principles uh, fell off the page, like the rule of law, like transparency, like it Asia, being Asia's world city. Well, ten minutes ago, I heard you stick your head in the sand on the... Uh, on the on the Benedict Roger, uh, on the Dominic Rogers case, you said you couldn't talk about it, but you talk in your speech about transparency, and you talk about the rule of law. In fact, you mentioned the rule of law seven times. The immigration officers didn't give Benedict uh, Dominic Rogers an explanation. Benedict. Now that's not consistent with the rule of law at all. And you're just in denial. You just say it's not my concern. How can you really be a leader of Hong Kong 
if it's not your concern, many people are concerned about this case and that's why it's raised. What would you say about that? Well, what I have said is I try to dispel all these unnecessary worries over a particular case. But of course, as a government, Duncan, you will realize that uh, although I advocate transparency, it doesn't mean that I can... uh, disclose everything that the government's doing. There is a paragraph in the policy address on strengthening our anti-terrorism capacity. Do you expect me to sit here and talk to you about anti-terrorism preparation, do, intelligence gathering? Do you really want to mention anti-terrorism so in the same context as yeah. when we're discussing Benedict Rogers? Um, no, I just, I just comment on the question about not being transparent. There are situations in order to protect the government, protect the people, you could not be 100% transparent. But uh, to not to be able for the chief executive to comment on uh, individual situation uh, is equivalent to not upholding or safeguarding the rule of law is a most unfair accusation. Duncan? Duncan? But to be honest, I think you, you rule, rule by law, but not by the rule of law. I mean, look at the, dele- look at the delays uh, after the Occup- Occupy movement. Uh, Benny Tai is still waiting for some resolution of the cases. Why is it taking so long for all these cases to come forward? It's not consistent with the rule of law. You're selecting cases as you, uh, as you move forward. How do you think that makes the, uh, the proponents in these cases feel that like they have to wait years? Even the Ken Jang assault case. Well, the under the basic law, both the... Sorry. To trial, that should have been in the courts in months, not a year. Okay, Mr. Sam. Under the basic law, both the prosecution as well as judicial proceedings are independent and they are not subject to any interference. So uh, I cannot really uh, comment on why it has taken a certain period uh, before the case could appear before the court. And what's more, of course, I'm not here to comment on the judicial decisions on individual cases. And that's why over the last two days, whenever people attacked uh, my Secretary for Justice for political intervention, political con- uh, prosecution, I have to come to his defence because that was absolutely not the case. Do you have full confidence in your Secretary for Justice? Of course. He wants to leave, right? He's not going to stay for the <laughs> full term. I'm not going to comment on that, Danny. No. OK, yeah. D- Duncan, did you want to come back? Well, it's very easy to say these things enough times. I know that there were seven mentions of of the rule of law. Some of these cases are taking so long after the fact, they very look like political subjects. There's any manner of thing, any number of abuses uh, that the government could pursue instead of three-year-old cases. The inordinate delay is not in the interest of law at all. Islam, final word? No, final word is uh, we respect judicial independence and the uh, only uh, mission of the executive vis-a-vis the judiciary is to provide all the needed resources for the judiciary so that um, the uh, rule of law uh, could be executed effectively. And in this policy address, exceptionally, I did talk about providing uh, all the needed resources for the judiciary. Okay, uh, thanks very much indeed for your call. I think we've just got time for one more, uh, a brief one. Uh, Maggie is on the line, I think. Maggie, good morning. Uh, good morning, Mrs. Islam. A uh, quick question. So I've been volunteering with ethnic minority children who are struggling to learn Chinese in the local schools, and the parents really want their kids to learn Chinese. But when they enter primary one, they're already behind. So what can you do to support the kids at kindergarten level so they can expand their vocabulary and have a better chance of coping with Chinese when they enter Chinese medium primary one? 
Well, the, uh, Maggie, that is an issue very close to my heart, even when I was a chief secretary for administration. So uh, the free and quality education in kindergarten that we rolled out in this academic year, we have made special provision for uh uh, ethnic minorities. So kindergartens who enroll more ethnic minority children will be given more teaching resources. And uh, you may rest assured that it will continue to be of my prime concern. That's why in the preparatory committee for the Children's Commission, I have appointed an ethnic minority uh, lady to sit on the preparatory committee. Okay, Maggie, do you want to add anything? Um, can I just ask one thing? That The problem is that the best thing might be for these children to be in a school where there's not many ethnic minorities, but you're g- only giving funding when there's eight or more. So uh, we, we want every child to have the support they need, and ideally perhaps not to be in one of these schools that's full of ethnic minorities. We want them to be able to have lots more chance to interact with local, local children and speak Chinese. Okay, Maggie. No, I, well, I do agree with that. That's why uh, we are giving resources to mainstream schools for them to uh, uh, take care of ethnic minority children. Okay, Maggie, thank you very much indeed for your call. Thank you to everybody who called um, this morning. And um, sorry we weren't able to get to the uh, emails, but thank you very much indeed to uh, the Chief Executive, uh, Carrie Lamb, for joining us this morning, talking to us about current affairs as well as the uh, policy uh, address this morning. Back chat will continue. We'll be going to be talking to Tommy Chung and uh, Wu Chi Wai later. Uh, that's between 9 and 9.30 here on Radio 3. For the meantime, thank you all very much indeed. Uh, quick look at the weather. It's going to be mainly fine and dry today. The latest reading is 25 degrees. The relative humidity is now at 60. 9% coming up the news at 9.